This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Many people over the years have referred to America as a miracle, a nation guided by divine providence and establishing a union where man could be free and exercise his God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what are some of the individual miracles that have helped to shape our great nation along the way? Many of them are outlined in a new book. It's called Miracles in American History, Volume 2, Amazing Faith That Shaped a Nation. It's a compilation of some of the best of William J. Federer's American Minute radio features compiled by his wife, Susie. And Bill Federer, of course, is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch Incorporated, which is a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. And we're just delighted to welcome him back to Janet Meffer today. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you with us. Janet, great to be with you. Well, there are a lot of miracles to talk about when you go through the whole of American history. Your book here begins with William Penn, and I think that's a really fascinating story. There are many, many fascinating stories, but tell us a little bit about William Penn and the miracle of his holy experiment uh, in the colony of Pennsylvania. Right, so England was Anglican, and you had to believe the way the king said, or you could be burnt at the stake, and he converted to becoming a Quaker. His saying was, force makes hypocrites, tis persuasion only that makes converts. (laughs) And so this came up with this idea of the uh, conscience. And uh, when he founds his colony, uh, he does this holy experiment of letting Christians of different denominations come in and see if they could live together in the same geographic area. Wow, what a novel idea. (laughs) The attitude most of the other colonies had was, if you don't like our denomination, fine, start your own colony. It was one denomination per colony, like Europe was one denomination per country. And so when this idea of conscience comes along, it sets the foundation for revivals. Because now, instead of you believing the way the king says, or you're in trouble, now there's an appeal to your conscience. And so we see the Great Awakening revival is coming out of this. Uh, The ground is now, uh, the soil is ready for this revival. And so you see, uh, you know, George Whitfield come over. And there's a a chapter that I think is fascinating. You have uh, European wars, Catholic, Protestant, and uh, the one family called the Zinzendorfs, uh, the nobleman, uh, moves to Bavaria. It's a part of Russia, actually Moravia. And uh, the dad dies. The young son is raised by his pietist grandmother, and he's 19, and he's traveling through Europe on his grand tour to meet all the lobbyists of all the king's courts, and he's in Dusseldorf. His free time, he visits a museum, sees a painting of Christ crucified, crown of thorns. Underneath, it says, all this I have done for you, what are you doing for me? Hmm. And his image keeps coming back to him, and he decides to open up his big estate in Moravia for all these persecuted Christians to come and live together. He calls it Heron Hut, the Lord's Watch. It's great until they start bickering with each other. (laughs) He leaves his mansion, lives amongst them. They have a communion service where they forgive each other. It goes on all day. They're praying and all night. It goes on all week. They take turns taking care of the kids and cooking and farming and so forth. The prayer meeting goes on uninterrupted for a month. 
for a year. That prayer meeting went on uninterrupted for over 100 years. And the small group of Moravian missionaries, they go to Burma and uh, Egypt and Iceland and to Georgia. And so here you have a boat headed to Georgia. Uh, On it is Charles Wesley and John Wesley. Uh, Charles is the secretary for the governor of the colony, James Oglethorpe, and John Wesley is the young minister. They're in a storm, and the boat almost sinks. And John Wesley sees these Moravian missionaries in one of the below decks, and they're just singing praise songs to the Lord as if nothing's <laughs> happening. And afterwards, he says, weren't you afraid? They go, no, we were just worshiping. You know, uh, and so he realizes they know Jesus a little more intimately than he knows Jesus. Hmm. Well, they sort of uh, flop in his ministry, and so the Wesleys go back to England. They meet another Moravian. They invite him to an Aldersgate prayer meeting, and they pray all night, and he's touched by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes eight months, and he lives at Heronhut, and he sees the religion of the heart. And this is the first time people believing and loving each other without the government's fear of burning you at the stake. He comes back. He starts a revival movement inside of the Anglican Church called Methodism. He gets his friend George Whitfield involved. Whitfield preaches seven times up and down the colonies of America to crowds of 20,000 people. Ben Franklin prints all of his sermons. It's called the Great Awakening Revival, and it helps unite the colonies prior to the Revolutionary War. And so this is uh, one of the chapters in the book, uh, Miracles in American History, Volume 2, and it just goes, uh, I trace these revivals throughout history, and if you want, I can share a couple others. Oh, I love it. I love it. So would you really be on board with saying without William Penn, there couldn't have been the Wesleys and the Whitfield and what was to follow with the the awakenings in America? Uh, it would have been a whole lot harder, definitely, uh, because he has this idea of uh, letting people come in and this appealing to the heart. He also insisted on buying land from the Indians rather than New York, where you try to shice them out of their Manhattan Island for a couple of glass beads, you know. <laughs> and, and as a result, Pennsylvania did not have the Indian attacks that the other colonies had. Uh, he was just a godly man. Now, at the same time, you have a story west of the Appalachians, uh, the Mississippi River, uh, Marquis de la, um, sorry, um, uh, Pierre Marquette. So Pierre Marquette's a French missionary priest, lands in Canada, comes down with um, uh, Joliet, and they evangelize the Indians. And uh, I tell the whole story in the book. Um, He basically um, goes from city to city. He interprets it, and they have these Indians. And one settlement on the shore of Lake Michigan, he gets 500 Indian chiefs together and about 1,500 people and it's the uh, the day before Easter, and he um, preaches the gospel to them, tells them about Jesus. And uh, and so these are the Illinois Indians. And then afterwards, that settlement turns into the city of Chicago. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Um, and so back to the, the, uh, the Whitfield. So um, George Whitfield dies, and they need someone to take his place. They get a 26-year-old guy named Francis Asbury. And so he comes to America. And he does what's called circuit riding. So mm-hmm. the circle, you go from town to town to town, and you keep doing that over and over again. He circuit rides and preaches from Canada to the Caribbean. The Revolutionary War starts. A whole lot of Anglican ministers who are employed by the king, they go back to England. And he says, I cannot leave a mission field so ripe for the gospel. And he stays over in America. Mm-hmm. And this Methodist revival movement grows and grows and grows. 
until he splits it away in 1786 into its own brand new denomination called the Methodists. Right. And uh, he ordains the first black preachers in America. Richard Allen, who founded the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so then I tell the story of all the black preachers in America. Yes. Yeah, you do. You talk about, yeah, these early black preachers and missionaries. And of course, I I would imagine more people would know the names of the Wesleys and the Whitfields, you know, George Whitfield more readily than some of these others. But who were some of the significant black preachers and missionaries in early America? Well, during the Revolutionary War, uh, by the way, there's a whole chapter on all the famous women during the Revolutionary War, you know, Molly Pitcher and Betsy Ross and Nancy Hart. But uh, so during the Revolutionary War, a black a freed slave leaves from uh, Georgia and goes to Jamaica. His name is George Lyle. And he gets 8,000 people saved, and he starts a big Baptist church. He's hmm. considered the first missionary sent out from America. Is a black man, George Lyle. Very few people know about him. And then other black leaders go over to Sierra Leone, and some go up to Nova Scotia. So they're leaving during the Revolution period, and they're going to these areas. Well, then you have uh, Harry Hoosier. He traveled with Francis Asbury, sort of as an assistant. He was illiterate. Uh, but he heard Asbury preach, and Asbury would read the Bible out loud while they were traveling, and he memorized entire chapters of the Bible, <laughs> entire sermons, and he would preach them better than Francis Asbury. <laughs> Uh, so he's, he was considered the greatest preacher in the world. His name was Black Harry Hoosier. And you know how Lutherans were followers of Luther? Well, he would have followers, and he'd have these huge, in the middle of the you know Ohio woods, hemp meetings, and so his followers were called Hoosiers. I love that. Hang they on just a moment. the Ohio River. Uh, hang on just yeah. a moment. Bill, we're going to go to a very quick break. We'll pick it up on the other side. Miracles in American History, Volume 2 is the book. Bill Federer with us. We'll return on Janet Mefford today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. After taking the morning after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant. I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done, Lord. I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the 
the gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us William J. Federer. He is out with another book. It's Miracles in American History, Volume 2, a compilation of some of the best of his American Minute radio features. And it's always a great history lesson when we are able to listen to what he has written and uh, we learn a lot. So, Bill, you were talking about some of the early black preachers and missionaries that you outline in your book. Harry Hoosier is the one that you were focused on, a man who traveled with Francis Asbury and memorized huge chapters of the Bible and ended up becoming this incredible preacher. Again, this is a very significant person in American history. Right. And so this branches into what's called the Second Great Awakening Revival and a whole lot of camp meeting revivals taking place in the woods in Kentucky. There's a James McReady, and he gets his little church to fast and pray. They have a meeting, 500 people show up, another meeting, 1,500, the next year, 8,000, the next year, 15,000, the next year, 25,000 people show up in the woods around Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and they, they don't have microphones. And so they have platforms every 50 yards, another platform, another preacher, and you get out of the earshot of one, you come into the earshot of the other. Well, during this time, the Second Great Awakening, you have uh, a missionary movement that starts. Williams College, Massachusetts, some students are walking back across a field, starts pouring down rain. They hide under a haystack. While they're there, they pray for world missions, and they commit their lives to world missions. The rain stops. They go back to class. They tell the other students they just committed their lives to world missions. Well, the other students start committing their lives, and they start a missionary society, uh, American Board of Foreign Missions. And the next couple of years, they send out 5,000 missionaries all around the world. Adoniram Judson goes to Burman. So now during this time, you have uh, whaling ships. One's in Hawaii, the Sandwich Islands. A couple boys jump on it, and they wind up in Connecticut during this time. (laughs) You have Timothy Dwight, president of Yale, and he's bringing the revival to the campus. And so these two Hawaiian boys get saved. Uh, One of them is Thomas Hope, who he actually, believe it or not, joins the American military and fights under uh, Andrew Jackson against the British in the uh, you know Gulf of Mexico, and and the others Henry Opokuaya, who begins to write his life story down, becomes a bestseller. He dies, uh, but somebody that reads his books, Hiram Bingham, becomes a missionary. Thomas Hope, who's the interpreter, they go back to Hawaii. Hmm. The second boatload of missionaries to Hawaii has a black woman. Her name's Betsy Stockton, a freed black woman, and she goes to Hawaii, and here she is teaching them the gospel and starting schools. What an amazing story. Hmm. And uh, so in, in Hawaii, the uh, high chiefess, uh, Kiopulani, she gets saved. She defies Pele, the volcano god. So she walks into the crater, eats these forbidden taboo berries, and comes back alive. And <laughs> so the, it starts this Great Awakening revival in Hawaii in the early 1800s, and it spreads through Polynesia and the other different islands. And so one of the stories I can't pass up is John Stewart. He is a free black in Ohio. He dyes clothes, like blue jeans, and so he's at his business, and he's traveling. He's got his life savings, going to go to another town to start a business. He gets robbed. He's so depressed, he goes to the nearest town around Marion, Ohio, and he's going to drink himself to death. One day he's going to commit suicide, goes out 
to the river. And before he jumps in, he hears someone call his name. He looks around. There's nobody there. He goes back and drinks some more. You know, we've got a drinking buddy. But one day he's walking through the woods and hears singing. It's one of those Methodist camp meeting revivals. He shows up and the Lord touches his heart. Right. He gets saved. His drinking buddy says, hey, one more last binge night of drinking. And he says, "Okay." well, that very day, his drinking buddy dies. Oh, wow. (laughs) Anyway, so here's John Stewart. He continues to go to this camp meeting. He gets so on fire for the Lord. One day, the Lord impresses upon him to walk west, northwest. And so he just starts walking across hills, across fields, across streams and wading across creeks. And after a couple of days, he runs in to the Wyandotte Indian tribe. It had never been evangelized. They're about to do an Indian dance. He starts singing some Negro spirituals in his deep bass voice. (laughs) The Indians get quiet and listen. When he's done singing, one of them says, more. (laughs) Oh, wow. sing some more. (laughs) They finally find an interpreter. Long story short, the whole tribe gets saved. He starts a church and schools and so forth. And then the Democrats push through the Indian Removal Act. Right, signed by Andrew Jackson, the first Democrat president. And so these Indians are forced to move. This later is the Trail of Tears. But in Ohio, the Indians voluntarily go and they buy some land on the Missouri and they name it Wyandotte City. A couple of years later, they changed the name to Kansas City, but it's still in Wyandotte County. And so here you have Kansas City, Missouri, was founded by these Christian Wyandotte Indians who were all saved because of this black man, John Stewart. Just an amazing story. Um, Now, out of the Second Great Awakening, you have a preacher named uh, Charles Finney. Sure. He's a young attorney, and he uh, is reading Blackstone's Law Commentary and sees these references to the Bible, buys one, says, well, if there's a God, I want to meet him, goes out to the woods, prays, and says, I'm not going to leave until you touch me or or you don't exist. Well, the Lord touches him. He feels, he calls it waves of liquid love. Goes back into his office. He prays. Next thing he knows, it's the morning. He had prayed all night. And uh, a deacon comes into his law office and says, how's my lawsuit against the other deacon? Charles Finney said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get another attorney. I've been retained by a higher power. (laughs) He goes out and presents the gospel with the conviction of an attorney. And, you know, very convincingly, he's the first one to use colloquial terms for God instead of the these or thous. And he's the one who invented altar calls. He said, you serve the devil publicly. I'm going to call for you to stand up right where you're at and declare you're going to serve Jesus openly. Well, out of that, his lectures on revival get printed. They're over in England. And it's basically um, being a Christian is more than just uh, agreeing with doctrine. You have to show your faith. Um, uh, His lectures bring out two points. God is a just God, which means God has to judge every sin. If he does not judge his sin, he's effectively effectively giving consent to the sin, and he's not going to give consent to, to the sin. So his very nature drives him as a just God to judge every sin. But God is a loving God in that he provided himself as the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. Yes. Right? So that's why we approach. So you preach the law before see people see their need for the lamb. Anyway, his lectures on revival get read by a guy named George Williams. He starts the YMCA. And then another guy uh, named... Um, William Booth and his wife, Catherine, they read the lectures on revival. They start the Salvation Army, which started originally to get young girls out of the sex trafficking that went on in England. (laughs) And um, so these are just fascinating stories. Again, they're all in this book, Miracles in American History, Volume 2. They're great. Uh, I've got some more if if there's time. Yeah, go for it. Well, uh, 1857, you have uh, New York, a little businessman, Jeremy Lamphere. 
he decides to put a sign out in front of his shop saying, come in at lunchtime to pray. You know, nobody comes at the last minute, like one person comes in, prays for a couple minutes. Well, he keeps it going. Next week, a couple of people come. The next week, there's hundreds coming. The next week, there's thousands coming. And then they come to all kinds of meetings. Everybody's starting these. And then they go to Boston and New York and uh, Philadelphia and, you know, Los Angeles. This are spreading around the country, and it's a layman's prayer revival. There's no denomination organizing it. It's just spontaneous, and it sweeps the country. Well, out of this layman's prayer revival, there's a shoe salesman in Chicago. His name's D.L. Moody. And he decides to take an abandoned saloon and open it up to teach a Sunday school to these poor inner city kids. And uh, he says it's the greatest lie of the devil to think that kids can't understand the gospel when Jesus used a child as the example of faith. And so he's preaching. It grows to 1,500 people. And so then, 1861, Abraham Lincoln gets elected president. He takes a train from Springfield to Chicago on his way to D.C. He stops off and visits D.L. Moody's Sunday school class. 1,500 people there after the class, D.L. Moody says, well, Mr. Lincoln, do you have anything you would like to tell the students? And he says, yes, if you all do what that man tells you, you'll be just fine. (laughs) Anyway, so D.L. Moody ends up preaching to thousands across America, and uh, then he, P.T. Barnum, Barnum and Bailey Circus, in New York, they have the great Roman Hippodrome, a big theater, you know, where they do the circus. Well, he doesn't have a circus on Sunday. And so he let D.L. Moody use it for revivals. And he has 25,000 people showing up at this great Roman Hippodrome in New York. And then D.L. Moody goes over to Europe. He's preaching to all kinds of people. He's coming back. He's older now. And the ship breaks the engine and starts taking on water. And it drifts out of the sea lanes. And everybody thinks they're just going to sink. Nobody's even noticed they're missing. And so he gets them all on deck. The deck's tilted and slanting, and he's preaching out of Psalms 91. And suddenly they see in the distance a ship coming to their rescue. And he later says, you know, he was going to skip out on doing anything for the Chicago World's Fair uh, in 1893. And, um, but he says after that, he decided he was going to give uh, his very last, uh, his best to the Lord. And so he talks about the uh, Chicago World's Fair, and at the end of the evening, they have this enormous fireworks display, and he's got his tent set up, and he goes, nobody's going to come in my tent after all this. Well, sure enough, his tent fills up with thousands. It's packed. He preaches to them. This starts this revival. People give testimonies of how they were out on, you know, outside, and, and they felt the Holy Spirit tugging them in there and so forth. And so here, his greatest event, he's touching people that go back all around the world after this. and uh, But his style of preaching uh, influenced somebody else in Chicago, uh, a baseball player. So now it's the late 1800s, and you have a uh, Chicago White Stockings baseball player <laughs> named Billy Sunday. That's right. He's at the peak of his popularity, his career. He comes out of a saloon, and he hears singing down the street. It's the Pacific Garden Mission. They're singing songs that his mom used to sing to him as a kid. He goes there and listens. He's touched in his heart. He goes back, goes back, meets a girl, uh, and starts going to her church. The father wouldn't let him date because um, he thought that baseball players were ne'er-do-wells. When they get old, their body wears out. They're just, you know, sort of bums. And and so 
the, the daughter convinces the dad, lets him date. Uh, her name's Nell. They end up getting married. He says that he would not do anything without his wife giving the okay. And his wife organized all of his revival meetings. What well, you know and what? They would plan these things a year in advance. It's a tremendous story. So many tremendous stories. We're going to have to leave it there, though, for the sake of time. But check it out. A Miracles in American History, Volume 2. Bill Federer with us. And Bill, always a joy to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. If anyone's interested, AmericanMinute.com is my website. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Bill. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. While we often hear from the left how important it is to highlight women's voices and to promote women's equality in business, and yet many of these same people demonstrate that they think women are expendable in families as moms raising their children. Case in point, Washington State, where Democrats have introduced some insane legislation that clearly shows how backwards their thinking is on the importance of women who are at home with their kids. Well, joining me now is Katie Faust. She has written about this important issue over at The Federalist. Katie is the founder and director of the children's rights organization, Them Before Us. And it's so wonderful to have you with us, Katie. Thank you for being here. Hi, Janet. Thank you for letting me share with your audience today. Oh, man. It's so great to have you here. As you know, I loved your article. I put it out on Twitter and I gave you a high five because I said, this is such hypocrisy on the part of the left. But fill us in a little bit on what's been going on out your way when it comes to this hypocrisy that we're seeing on the family. Yes, it's pretty striking. Um, Two years ago, like almost to the day, um, I was sitting in the courtroom in the Senate hearing room listening to one of the sponsors of a bill um, in 2018 called the Uniform Parentage Act that was designed to do several things, really to completely redefine parenthood. And one aspect of that bill was to strip the words mother and father strip all references of gender out of parenthood laws, Hmm. right? And one of the sponsors of that bill was named Jamie Peterson, and he stated right up front that now that gay marriage is the law of the land, referencing mothers and fathers in parenthood law is unconstitutional. Um, So it's ridiculous, right? They're saying, look, mothers and fathers are completely irrelevant. Men and women are completely irrelevant to the home, right? Kids don't need moms and dads. That's what they were saying. So fast forward two years, and now they're pushing a bill that says that um, every publicly held company needs to have at least 25% female representation on their board of directors, right? So in essence, women's voices and women's perspectives and women's presence is optional in the family, but it's critical in business. It's so ridiculous. Well, Jamie Peterson, you point out in the piece, has his own quote-unquote husband, so that might explain some of this. Well, absolutely. Um, You know, in his home, he doesn't have any female representation at the head of the home. The only reason why women were involved is because they needed uh, a woman's eggs and a woman's womb so that they could create motherless children. And so to me, obviously, he doesn't think that it's important in his own home, but he insists 
that businesses need to have women on their board. So square that circle for me. Yeah, well, that's bizarre because not only is that totally hypocritical, but the left also, these are the same people who are saying, well, if, if women are trying to compete in sports and confused men come along and identify as women and want to compete against them, there's no problem with that. How in the world do they keep up the two-faced response to the issue of of women because they're they're, they're all over the map in order to appease yeah. homosexual activists well it's a, it's there's so much cognitive dissonance um that really their worldview is going to collapse in on them and yeah. if you look at the the language of the bill today um the the 2020 bill that's talking about the gender quotas in business it defines a woman as anybody who identifies as a woman <sighs> so you know, they are just going to entrench the patriarchy further because if a board has 10 men on it and they believe that those 10 men are qualified, three of those men simply have to self-identify as a woman and then they're going to be able to comply with this new regulation. That's true. So I, there's really no logical consistency and there's certainly no scientific basis for any of these assertions they're making, both in the family and in business. Why do you think it is? I know Washington State, at least the western half of Washington State, is extremely off the rails when it comes to leftism. But why do you think more people do not push back against this and say, you guys have gone too far. This is nuts. You, you can't make these kinds of uh, laws and try to erase mothers. You're acting as if kids don't even need a mother and a father anymore. Well, I honestly... Um I just think that the other side uses such intimidation tactics and most people just don't have the fortitude to stand up against it. I mean, I know that I didn't for a long time. I was happy to just kind of keep quiet um, and keep my friends because I just wanted to keep my friends and live at peace. And yeah. I didn't like to be called a bigot and I didn't like to be called a homophobe or a transphobe or or whatever. You know what I mean? It's I really do. uncomfortable to put yourself out there and speak up. It is. But for me, what crossed the line was this saying that kids don't need moms and dads, that that's not only a sociological lie, but it is seriously an act of injustice now that we are incentivizing and promoting motherless and fatherless homes. I mean, you're ripping a kid's heart out. And I'm currently writing a book called Them Before Us, Good. Why the World Needs a Global Children's Rights Movement. And right now I am, you know, detailing the impact of divorce on children. And I, I mean, you are wrecking kids' mental health, emotional health physical health, academic health, when you starve them of these critical staples of their social emotional diet. And that is mother's love and father's love and stability. Exactly. Amazingly, traditional marriage was the only institution that brought all three of those together. Yeah, exactly. What you pointed out in your article when you were discussing this 2018 Uniform Parentage Act, one of the things that act also did was endorse the dangerous precedent of parenthood based on intent. Well, last right. I checked, yes, of course, people can adopt babies. But generally speaking, when a woman gets pregnant, there's your intent right there. <laughs> you know, it's pretty it's very, very natural for a man and a woman in a marriage to have a child. Just naturally speaking, right. there's there's no technology normally involved uh, through Throughout human history. So uh, what is this parenthood based on intent? What does that even mean? Right. So historically, we've recognized parenthood um, on two bases. The first one is a biological parenthood. And that makes sense, right? Because we know that biological parents are statistically the most connected to, invested in, and protective of their kids. Right. Something about biology wires natural parents to be connected to their own kids. Now, that... that completely well-founded recognition is the very reason why adoption agencies 
ensure that prospective parents must go through a lot of vetting and scrutiny because placing a child with an unrelated adult is risky. True. And that's why adoptive parents like me need to be required to submit to background checks, right? Right. Now, this new idea of parenthood based on intent awards custody of children to unrelated adults because they intend to parent them, right? And what that means is they have had the money and the means to put together sperm, egg, and womb and acquire that child just because they've got money and power and lawyers. Now, that is incredibly dangerous. In fact, you would say that that looks an awful lot like the commodification of people that we fought a civil war to end. Yes. Yeah, so intent-based parenthood is the new frontier of parenting changes Um, And much of that comes down to the changes in the laws around gay marriage, right? Because if gay couples need to be afforded the full constellation of benefits, as um, Justice Kennedy described in his Supreme Court opinion that legalized gay marriage across the country, right, then gay couples and heterosexual couples must be treated exactly the same in parenthood laws. But that means nullifying biology as a basis for parenthood. Of course. So all of these things are connected, right? Yep. Push for gay marriage has redefined parenthood in ways that are going to impact everybody, especially kids. Oh, yeah. And and what ends up happening is what we're already seeing as well, which is they go after, for example, Christian adoption agencies. You're being discriminatory if you only want to give a baby to a married mom and dad. And, and that negates right. all of the research that we know is out there showing that kids do best when they have a mom and a dad. That's just indisputable. Right. And I'd say that kids who have gone through the trauma of losing their parents through adoption especially need parental love in the form of paternal love and maternal love yeah. like, that, that they really, I mean, we've got a child who's adopted. He went through some significant traumas before he arrived at our home. I see the way that he desperately needs sort of a soft place to land with me and a parent who also enforces boundaries a little more sternly than I would in my husband. Right. Um, so, but that's not to say that that's always an option. I mean, but what we know is that adoptive agencies need to have the ability to consider the biological sex of the prospective parents and the marital status of the prospective parents. Both of those are extremely relevant to child well-being. Well, absolutely. And something else that I want to get into when we come back from this next break, Katie, is what you say about the important role that a mom and a dad both play in a child's life. That was great stuff. We'll come back to it. Katie Faust with us on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. 
It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. This is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Christ. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $100 sends 20. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It really is the case that the left claims women are essential to business, but optional to families. All you have to do is look at what has been going on in Washington state. And Katie Faust writes about this over at the Federalist website. Fantastic piece. And Katie is with us, founder and director of the children's rights organization, Them Before Us. And you were talking a little bit, we were about the Uniform Parentage Act that was passed in Washington in 2018. One of the things that it endorsed was this idea of parenthood based on intent, which brings me back to this main point, which I've heard other people say, and I think it's so insightful, which is what makes people think that they have a right to somebody else's baby just because love wins, you know, just because Obergefell was a decision decided by five unelected judges, all of a sudden, you know, you ought to have everything that you want. It's not about, it's perfect uh, to, to dovetail with the name of your organization, Katie. It's putting ourselves before the kids. This is seeming to become a society-wide problem. Right. And what we try to do at Them Before Us is encourage every conversation about marriage and family to put them, the children, before us, the adults. And that has to go through every issue that we're facing about marriage and family and parenthood, right? Not just issues of gay marriage. And that's one thing that us conservatives have gotten wrong for a while, right? We'll, we'll be up in arms about gay marriage or gay parenting, and then we're kind of quiet about divorce right. or heterosexual couples using sperm donors. Right. And the reality is everybody... You do not have a right to a child, right? If that child is not born to you, you don't have a right to it. Children have a right to their parents. Children have a right to be known and loved by their mother and father. And every adult, gay or straight or single or married, needs to conform to those fundamental child rights. And when we don't, not only do we wreck our society, but we break children's hearts. Totally true. I I love the way you turn that back and say children have a right to their parents. That's beautifully said, and it's so true, and and we need to just shout that from the rooftops. When when you went into your article on the issue of why kids benefit from both the mom and a dad, I thought these were such great points, Katie. Can you explain some of the important differences that are complementary that a mom gives a child versus a dad and, and how those fit together so beautifully to form a healthy child? Right. It is almost as if nature got this exactly right. (laughs) It's almost as if the two people that 
create the baby are best positioned to raise that baby, right? It's as if the fact that a man and a woman make a baby means that men give something distinct to women and uh, men give something distinct to children and women give something distinct to children. And so I list three kind of general examples in the article, but the first one is just the way moms and dads connect to their kids, right? That moms tend to relate to kids in a way that is a little bit, um, well, what, what sociologists call mundane caregiving. You know, we're just yeah. kind of concerned with kids brushing their teeth, eating their vegetables, going to bed on time, yeah. making sure that their, their laundry is folded. And you know what? That, that doesn't look very exciting, but it's kind of critical for keeping kids alive. Yes. It's just something women tend to do naturally. Yep. Dads come home and throw their kids up in the air. <laughs> yes, <You> know, they do. <laughs> dads, when, when I go out on a business trip and my husband is home, they are sword fighting and they eat, you know, uh, root beer floats for dinner. And it's okay. <laughs> yes. It's okay to have that kind of adventure and that out of the ordinary, the risk taking and the excitement. And you also need a mom to make sure that, you know, they're, they're eating three square meals a day. And so the next example I give is talking and um, just men and women talk differently to their kids. I mean, watch moms with babies, right? They'll be like, oh, honey, did you get a little owie? Oh, that looks like a big, big boo-boo, right? And dads would be like, dude, that's a gnarly rug burn. Whoa, what have you been up to today? Right? Women tend to simplify their language to meet the kid right where they are at their age level. Dads don't. True. You know, they just talk to kids the way they talk to everybody else. And so, like, moms kind of reach kids right where they are, and dads push kids, like, language comprehension to the next level. You know, they even read, I didn't put this in the article, they even read bedtime stories differently. They read the same bedtime story, they read it differently, right? They talk about the same bedtime story differently. Moms tend to ask kids to describe what they're reading in the book. Oh, how many blocks do you see? Oh, my goodness. What, what color is that cat? And dads will say things like, where do you think that they got the materials to build that house? Hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Men and women are wired differently and they bring these incredible complementary benefits to kids. And finally, you know, the other example I give is play. You know, when, when men play with their kids, it's big things. It's large motor skills. It's jumping and running and throwing and catching and digging. And when moms play with kids, it's fine motor skills. It tends to be a little more crafting or cutting or you know i play cards with my kids so i've taught my kids all how to like do a bridge when they're when they're dealing and so it's just i think about it like which parent does a kid need Hmm. is it the one that's going to push them towards independence or is it the one that emphasizes security very true you know is it the one that's going to be a little more firm with discipline and boundaries or is it going to be the one that is a little more understanding when they're emotionally struggling and the answer is you're an idiot you're an idiot to think that kids need one or the other. They That's need so both true. of them. That's so true. You know what came into my mind? Well, a lot of incidents from my own household with my husband and me and how we relate to our kids, which is exactly what you just said. But I was thinking, for example, when I was growing up, whenever I went to bed, when I was very, very little, my mom would come in and sing me a lullaby. And then my dad would come <laughs> in and he would always sing to me Chattanooga Choo Choo, this very raucous version of Chattanooga <laughs> Choo Choo. And I remember she used to say to him, don't get her all riled up before bed. But I loved both of them. Did you love it? I love both yeah. of them. I loved the raucous yeah. one and I love the soothing voice of my mom singing the lullaby. Yeah. And that's just, you know, one example of what you're talking about. Yeah, like I cracked me up. I, you know, I'm on all kinds of family pages and people share videos of dads doing crazy things with their kids, like even their little babies. Yes. Right. So Google it. Google dad with baby video and tell me what you see. Like it is joy 
filled. You watch these kids, dads doing these boundary pushing things with their kids and their kids love it. And then Google mother with baby video. And you're going to see like pictures and videos of moms and babies kissing each other and snuggling with each other. And it's like, there it is. The unfiltered, you know, picture of the differences of moms and dads and how much kids love both of them. Right, right. Yeah, there was a video I just saw yesterday. My husband actually sent it to me. It was a, uh, you might have seen this. It was a dad holding his daughter in a baby, like a baby bouncer, and was holding the Uh baby bouncer up in front of the TV. And there was a video of a roller coaster track. And it was Uh like the camera going up and down the roller coaster. And he was moving the baby carrier up and down. So the baby felt like she was on the roller coaster. Oh, I love it. one like that where the baby's in a laundry basket, yes, right? And yes. jiggling over. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I do too. And I think moms boy- don't do that. Moms don't do that. <laughs> and I know that there's like one in a hundred moms out there going, I do that. And I'm like, okay, good. You do that. 99% of moms don't do that. That's true. But you know what kids learn? Kids learn that there's adventure and excitement, but they also are learning that from somebody who loves them more than any other man in the world and would never put them at risk unnecessarily, right? Great so point. dads get them right up to the edge of that risk-taking, but always in the context of safety. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. It is. And, you know, we have not seen yet the long-term effects on these kids who are growing up in a household without a mom and a dad. I mean, we've seen some of the statistics from divorced homes, if you have single-parent homes. But as far as a post-Obergefell world, we don't have the long-term data on the effect of a child being raised necessarily by two men or two women. And I I very much doubt that those long-term studies are going to show wonderful achievements in the end or wonderful results from having tried this terrible social experiment where kids are the innocent victims. Right. Well, what we know is that when we study children who have lost a parent to death, that there's diminished outcomes for those kids. And Hmm. we learned that kids who have lost their parents to abandonment and subsequently been adopted they don't fare as well as kids who are raised by both biological parents. And when we study kids who are conceived through sperm or egg donation, they have drastically increased risk of struggle when it comes to mental health and um, substance abuse and trust within their family and their own problems moving forward, forming relationships. Um, and we stu- when we study kids who have gone through divorce, I mean, it's, it drastically disadvantages kids. Right. Yes. So those are the only four ways that a child can arrive in the home of a married, I'm sorry, of two men or two women. They have to come through one of those two avenues, death, divorce, abandonment, third party reproduction. I, I, that's it. Right. Yeah. Or, and then subsequently adopted. And so when kids experience all of those four harms, those four traumas, and they experience diminished results when often they're raised by a heterosexual couple afterwards, right, if their parents remarry, um, and then those kids have the benefit of the mothering and fathering at least, even though they've lost the biological parent, they still, right, those kids all still statistically do not do as well. I'm not going to be surprised when we do start to get the long-term studies of kids with two moms or two dads who show diminished outcomes because not only have they endured the trauma of losing a parent, not only are they being raised absent one biological parent, they are also being deprived of the 
either maternal love or paternal love that optimizes child development. You're so So, right, Katie. But, you know, we got to leave it there, but check out thembeforeus.com and Katie Faust's great piece over at The Federalist. Love claims women are essential to business, but optional to families. Katie, so glad you're doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Janet. All right. God bless you. Thank you for joining us at Janet Meffer today, and we'll see you next time. 